Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together, to be in community. We pray that you would make us aware of your presence in this space, that you would um, move us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what it is that you would have us to know and to study today together. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would all be drawn closer to you as we're drawn closer to one another as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our title for this Sunday's message is Justice for All. And uh, here's our passage from Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, before you are like, man, those apostles are crazy. Let me just do a quick note. Um, There are biblical precedents for this conversation. Do you remember Moses in the wilderness? He's got everybody coming to him for every little thing, and he can't do it anymore. And his father-in-law, Jethro, comes and says, you need to start appointing other people to help head up these things. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, the same thing is happening. You know, people are in charge. They don't know what to do. And there's daily distribution of food for the needy. So they appoint men in charge to be Um, overseeing that distribution of the needs. And the wait on tables here isn't really the servant, waitress, waiter aspect, which, by the way, I did a Google search for server, and it was nothing that I, there was no people involved. It was just servers, like computer servers. I was like, wow, my life has changed entirely. So they were not uh, servers so much as when they're looking at waiting on the tables, actually probably also administrating the finances, um, the distribution. It's It's a word here about, like, taking care, serving like deaconing the table, right, to make sure that everyone's taken care of. So that's my um, boop, boop, TiVo pause in the middle of the reading of our text. So brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Seven's a good number. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That's exactly what's happening in those other passages, particularly with Moses in the 70 slash 72. It's called the laying on of authority. In Hebrew, the word is smicha. And it's part of how you are passing your authority on to the next uh, persons in charge. So they lay hands, they give authority to these seven. Uh, The word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. All right, that's our reading for today. What is happening here? What's going on? Well, let's just start breaking down some of the story in this little bit. Daily care for widows uh, was commanded and practiced in Jesus's day and long before. Synagogues had weekly connection for the widows and the poor. Synagogues had daily connection for the poor. And they provided ongoing support for the most marginalized, the most broken, um, the widows, the orphans, the fatherless in the community at, at least two meals a day. And they provided immediate help in case of an emergency. The synagogue wasn't just a place where you would go and hear somebody teach about text. It was a place where you would go for anything that you had need of. If you needed a judgment, if something had gone wrong in your community, someone had put their fencing line a little too close to yours, you could go to the synagogue and work that out. You could go there to study text because that's where the text was kept. But also monies were collected there for charitable giving. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he says, don't do your acts of righteousness, of tzedakah, um, in front of others, right? It's, it's private for you and God, but everyone has this, this idea that you're supposed to give. And even today in Israel, uh, you'll see people begging on the street and they'll be asking for righteousness is the word in Hebrew, tzedakah. Now do something righteous, do an act of righteousness for me. And then we're to give what, before I go to Israel, my Jewish friends always give me some money. They'll give me a buck or five bucks or something so that I can do tzedakah. So I can do righteousness when I get there by donating and giving to somebody in need. 
So this is a highly commonly held uh, practice. It's also commanded. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, you know, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, Lord of lords, the great and mighty awesome God shows no partiality, accepts no brides. He delight, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you were once foreigners in Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 14, again, has that beautiful, you know, so in all of this as they're collecting the tithe, make sure that you're taking care of the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns that they can come and eat and be satisfied. So the early church, just as Luke has already told us in the beginning of Luke, that daily they're sharing everything that they have in need. You know, they're sharing anyone with anyone in need. They are doing good works. This is right in the line with how um, the Jewish people in Judea are practicing and living out their daily faith in God. We should also note that it's not at all surprising to find that the early followers of Jesus are engaged in ministry to widows and having that daily distribution of food because Jesus himself teaches about widows, uses widows as an example. He raises a widow's son. And this is this attention that Jesus gives to widows isn't just in line with God's commands of Deuteronomy, but it's always constantly showing the community that the most vulnerable person in the community, the person that has no one else to stand up for them, like why stop and raise this widow's son? Because without her son, she has no one, nothing, not a single person in her life. There's one other thing that's interesting to note from a cultural perspective. There was a great... um, desire to, to, for a Jewish person in Jesus's day, and likely even still today, although I know that it's as prevalent, that when you died, you died in Israel. So there were a lot of people who towards the ends of their lives would go and make sure that they were within the bounds of Israel for their death, which then left an inordinate amount of widows in the community. So there were a lot of widows to, that needed taking care of. And there was, it was a different culture and society, and so they're making sure these widows are taken care of. Now, Something, though, has gone wrong, hasn't it? Because even though they're taking care of these widows, some apparently aren't being taken care of well enough. So we have some really good intentions to give some daily food distribution to the widows, but we have a poor execution. And this is not an uncommon problem in the world today. Uh, Kurt Rhodes, who was here, recently told me a story about how in um, Lesvos and in Athens and in, in different parts of Greece, for the Syrian refugees are, that are there, there are some well-intentioned Christian organizations who have landed there and are trying to do daily distribution of food, but they will only give a piece of, you know, a food packet for each person standing in line. So when the father who has six children stands in line because they won't, they don't know enough because they're not practiced in how to manage food need in crisis situations. Um, these Christian organizations are going in and they're like, well, just stand in line. So he's having to stand in line six times in order to get food for his family, which is taking him all day, right? So good intention, poor execution. And that's what we have at the beginning of this story. We have the disciples who are leading in this church community. It's hard to call it a church. Everyone's still uh, Jewish in this ecclesia community, this new assembly of followers of Jesus in these synagogues. And they're leading and they're taking care of the widows, but something's not working well. And there's a conflict. Well, why? Why is there a conflict? The conflict is between Hellenists and Hebrews. Now, The thing that I just want to note here, in the early followers of Jesus, in this community, as well as our community here today, diversity is messy. And it becomes complicated when we start to share space, and when we have need, and when there's lines, and when you might feel like you're not being taken care of, and you might throw an elbow or two, or or let's say you don't like all the people that are standing in line with you. Now, this diversity is present because of Alex the G. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, in the 300s BC, right, Alex conquers the entire known world, and he brings with it Hellenism. And in the entire known world, really, at that time, you know, this whole area that Alex conquers, 
he brings with him Greek language. But he also has, throughout that area, there are Jews who have been um, dispersed through the Babylonian uh, regime, you know, through the Assyrian regime. So there's Jews outside of the Judean land of Israel. But there are also Greek-speaking Jews in Egypt, in Greece, in Italy, and beyond. They're still fully Jewish, but they're Greek in a lot of their language, maybe probably their dress and their practice. Now, if you are a Judean Hebrew Jew, and you're there in that area, and you've stayed there through every exile, you've watched your family go off and come back again, you have a, let's say, nationalistic pride, patriotic pride, that your family has remained in that space, and that you still speak Hebrew, that you're still speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, the lingua franca of the day, and that you're still holding on. I mean, you're like, you know, the real, the real faithful followers of God. And then these Hellenists come in who are also Jews, but let's be honest. They're speaking Greek. They read Torah in Greek. They read the Septuagint. They probably don't even know how to read or pronounce the name of God. They don't know their Hebrew letters. I mean, they didn't study at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel. Like, none of this has happened. And they're sitting there in this community, too. And so there starts to become a conflict. And, and it makes sense to me, right? There's a language barrier. I mean, even if they can understand one another, there's some pride of place to speak the language here. Have you ever heard somebody in America say something along the lines of, well, I just wish these people coming here would learn English? Something like that. I know you can't imagine it at all, right? Or um, look at these people, you know, we're the ones that stayed. We stuck, we, you know, I'm the first generation. I'm the second generation. I'm the fourth generation here. And we stayed and we worked hard and they're just walking on in and they're just mooching off the government. You know, what would happen? I mean, just welfare, welfare, welfare. I mean, the food stamps for Pete's sake. And you can hear the human responses that occurred even within places of faith um, about how maybe people might be working. So, so maybe there's a little bit of this. Both are mine, right? Maybe there's a little bit of, you know, Hellenists, your widows, we, we told them to be here at 10 and it's 1020. So we're just gonna have to shut this down. I mean, it's really, are you sure that they followed the rules? Did they really get in line at the right time? All that stuff. So, so here is this conflict the Hellenistic, the Greek-speaking Jews come and they tell the apostles that their widows are being shut out by the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So what do the apostles do with this information? They listen and they empathize. Nowhere in the text does it say, are you sure? Are you sure your widows are really being cut out? I mean, I'm sure nobody meant to. Did you tell them to be there a little bit early next time? They don't seem to minimize it at all. They believe what the Hellenistic Greeks, what the foreigner Greek Jews are telling them. They believe it because they immediately step away from the old systems and they try to institute a new one. And when they institute that new system and they embrace it, they then empower those leaders And the thing that I think is deeply fascinating is if you look at the list of the names of the seven people that are empowered, they are all Greek names. There's no Shlomo. There's no Yaakov. There's no Avraham. There's no Moshe. It's Philip, Stephen, Nicholas. Can you get a more Greek name than Nicholas? Right? And and seven of them, one who's a convert, to Judaism. So this isn't just, this is not a Jew with a Greek name. This is a Greek who's decided to convert to Judaism. I mean, a real Hellenist. I mean, he might not even have had all of the marks of Judaism that people might think are necessary yet. He is converted. So those seven people are the ones that are picked. Can you imagine if we lived in a place when people who had been marginalized and hurt and set aside by a system within the church were heard, believed, and then placed into the new system's leadership and empowered to make that change. And now these men who are picked, these seven men, are not just men who are then going to um, wait on tables. Because right after this, Stephen, full of faith, will prophesy and be martyred. And Philip will do the same. 
So these are men who are leaders, who are trustworthy for the message of the gospel, of the good news. And they are the ones that they, that get picked and their authority, the authority of the apostles gets placed on these seven Hellenistic Jews. And they are empowered to make systemic changes in that community. And what follows, it says in the text, is that everyone's somehow taken care of. The problem seems to be going away. The church is now growing. And now even priests are joining into the movement. So what happens when the, the apostles do this? People are moved. And people join in the movement, even leadership of the synagogues and of the temple. The priests themselves come and join in. Now, all of this gets me to thinking about the church today and how we live in our realities today in America, uh, post 11-9, how we work through all of that. I think one of the things I've been wrestling with, and there was a lot of tough news this week and last week, um, and and maybe we'll have a, a couple moments to talk about some of that. But the wrestling that I continue to have from November is that 81% of white evangelicals voted for, um, for a way of life that seems to not resonate with me, at least with my understanding of Jesus' teachings in the gospel. And within the church, so, so we have a problem. 81% of white evangelicals have said essentially... We're not concerned about racism, about systemic police brutality. I'm not saying every individual. I'm not trying to pay. But there was a choice, and we're a little bit stuck. Now, I've been in diverse communities for much of my life, and I've been in diverse churches for much of my pastoral career. Not all, but much. And for me, there's a, a, a hard frustration here when I feel like my brothers and sisters in Christ of color or who um, are of different um, gender identities have come to us as leaders within the church, as brothers and sisters within the church um, of, of maybe different paper identities and all of that and said, we are hurting and there are systems here that are broken and that are systematically breaking my family, my people, my community. And I'm not even sure I can trust the church anymore to be the place where I believe Jesus could be. I mean, I might just be out if you're all going to continue to not believe me, to not listen, to not empathize, to not believe me, to minimize it. I'm sure it's not happening. It's not happening to all of you. It's just happening to some of you. Well, they are illegal. I mean, it really isn't that technically a crime. And we have all of this stuff within brothers and sisters within our church who are legitimately coming and saying, we have a problem. Could we possibly learn the lessons of this Acts 6 church and start to listen and empathize and believe and then say, would you lead us? And could we embrace a different system that might bring some healing and some hope? I think, you know, when I think of the events of this week, when I think of the fact that um, the Voting Rights Act has been rolled back, that civil rights um, actions and legislation are being rolled back this week for LGBTQ community, for, for different members of different minorities, when I think of the deportations of Iraqi Christians who've been here their entire lives and are being rounded up and deported because they let somebody borrow a rental car, when, when I'm faced with that this week, when I'm faced with the verdict of Philando Castillo, I am deeply wounded and frustrated, and I'm wondering, where is the church? Where are the people of God? And why aren't we listening? And why aren't we participating in a solution? Rather than minimizing delegitimizing or holding up in our own safety areas because we don't want to know what's happening to our brothers and sisters. You know, this week and last week, you know, remembering the Charleston Nine, which after, um, after those nine brothers and sisters of ours were killed at that church in Charleston, we stopped what we were doing here at Spark and we preached this passage that they were studying when they were killed. And here we are, still stuck 
things aren't changing. And it feels really discouraging. And, and, and when we're looking at how our country responds, rightfully so, to a shooting that happens to representatives of ours, rightfully so, this is horrible, do we have that same concern when it happens to people that stood up for the marginalized and attacked women in Portland? Do we have that same concern for the loss of life of our African-American brothers and sisters at the hands of police? Do we have that same concern? And, and I keep thinking of my brothers and sisters in Christ that they have to be wondering, am I next? And will the church keep moving on too? And I'd like to suggest that at least one thing we can do is we can learn to lament. We can start to listen and we can start to have empathy. We can start to listen to the heartache and not try to argue it away, not try to rationalize it. And I encourage you in every significant way, do not try to find two more or three more statistics to argue away the hurt. You don't hear the apostles. We have no record of them doing that. Well, are you sure they're asking for it in the right language? Are you sure they lined up on time? Maybe they're on Hellenistic time and not Hebrew time, right? Maybe they aren't doing these things right. They don't do that, or I'm sure nobody meant it. I'm sure they don't minimalize it. They listen and believe and change, make a systemic change, empowering the people who've been marginalized. Jeremiah 19 actually says women Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. There's something in me that when we see the events in our nation this week and the week after and the week after that, and and here's the thing, you guys, unfortunately, this isn't new. We're just being forced to face it in a way maybe we haven't been willing to face it before. This is not a new thing, unfortunately. This is a very old problem. But if we can start to at least lament, hear the pain, hear the hurt, honor it without questioning it, without trying to say it's not this or it's not that, just join in the lament. I think that's a first step. Don't turn away when you hear the cries of Philando Castillo's mother. Don't don't turn away. Listen to her lament. She is your sister. And she has lost a son. And we need to listen to her. And next, I'd like to encourage us to start to strive for some justice. And I love the messages version of Amos 5. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. For those of us this week who were maybe paying attention to what was happening in the Southern Baptist Conference as a resolution came up to reject white supremacy and the alt-right movement. And the first resolution presented by an African-American pastor had language in it that was too difficult for a lot of people. So they, they ended up passing the resolution 99.9%, but only after they rewrote it and reintroduced a new one that was more palatable in its language. It didn't have any of that prophetic righteous anger that you might hear from the prophets. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you want to know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. That's from Amos 5, 21 through 24 from the message version. Yeah, if, if God knows how to lament, then certainly we can follow God's example and instruction and start to lament too and start to strive for the justice. And for I have dear friends for whom um, the church in North America, the American church, the evangelical Christian American church has become for them a place where they feel further harmed and they feel further hurt and they're questioning whether or not there's a home and a space for them still here. 
So they have to make those, those good decisions during the week when events like this happen, the Southern Baptist Convention happens, when other things happen, where they just turn off the news. But I, I hear this and, and I echo it. I'm fed up with this God. When will your institution, when will your bride, when will this church start to be the place where everyone can come? Where those who are marginalized and hurt and broken can come and find some hope and some healing. Now, in the midst of all of this, I'd like to suggest that there is a bit of good news, as I've totally made all of you somber and weep and wonder whether or not you can ever go to church again, including here. Um, If we don't know where things are broken, then we don't know where to bring the kingdom. We must know where the brokenness is, whether it's in the heart of the person that sits across the table from us, a spouse, a brother, a sister, a parent, a child, a neighbor, in order to pray the kingdom, the rule and the reign of Jesus, that hope and that love, that faith and that trustworthy into that place. If we don't know a place that is broken, then we can't bring the kingdom to that place. So when we see finally We're seeing some of us are finally awakening to the reality, the brutal reality of what is going on for many of our brothers and sisters here and around the world. When we're finally awakening to the brutal reality of what our brothers and sisters have quietly lived with because they knew we couldn't hear them. When we start to awaken to that, we can say, God, thank you for showing me where I am broken because I need your rule and reign in my life. Thank you for showing me where I have prejudice, where I have racism, where I am a participatory benefactor of this system, because I need your kingdom and your rule and your reign in my life. I want the oceans of the justice to flow. Thank you for showing me. And it can be deeply hard to see the hard things, but it's so, so good, because then we can know where to bring some systemic change. Imagine if in that early community, the Hellenistic followers just said, you know what, let's just go. We're not being taken care of while here. Let's just go. We would have lost the Jerusalem community following Jesus. We would have lost the extension of that going out into the Greco-Roman world. We would have lost the spreading of that message the kingdom wouldn't have been able to come. Imagine if they had gone to the disciples and they had said, you know, this is a problem. And they were like, eh, suck it up, deal with it. It's fine. They would have maybe tried. They probably would have left. And the kingdom, the rule and the reign of Jesus wouldn't have been able to come to them, to their mission. There wouldn't have been a Stephen and a Philip taking forth that message into the next portion of God's great mission and world. Imagine if long ago our brothers and sisters of colors had come to the white church in America and said, this is happening. And the white church in America said, we are going to do something about that. And by the way, a lot of people did. That was the abolition movement. And it was deeply centered in the person of Jesus and the gospel teachings of Jesus. Social justice is a God idea. It is deeply centered in the teachings of Jesus that we believe that the rule and the reign of Jesus can come right here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Our Father in Heaven prayer. You just prayed it. You asked for the rule and the reign of God to come here on earth as it is in heaven. That is not a spiritual thing that's floating in the air. That is a physical reality that comes and crashes in. There's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. I have some hope that that kingdom can come. That when we find the brokenness, the kingdom can come in. And in this, the reason why I have some hope is because I have known some faithful fools. You know that the gospel is foolishness to man, isn't it? It doesn't make sense for us to sit here and watch the crucifixion, death, burial, of Jesus and still hope for resurrection and see resurrection. It doesn't make sense for us to experience the resurrection, but still see Rome in charge and still believe that kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God is still now present. That God is already at the, Jesus is already at the right hand of the father ruling 
that that's already happening and in place. We have to be pretty foolish to think of those things. And honestly, I feel very much very foolish sometimes to think that I can come into a space on a Sunday and say, hey, church, we've had a lot of uh, communal sin that we need to repent for, but hey, let's, let's start doing something different. I have a belief that I'm just foolish enough to keep trying and to not give up on the hope that I see even in this nation. We can double down on our values. We can double down into the kingdom of Jesus. And these are the faithful fools that have been in my life, a few of them. Um, Tina and Stacy and Pastor Mark and Kendra and myself. Um, and so I would like to invite one of my dear friends who is a faithful fool um, up to join me because she has taught me so much that so we can have a short dialogue about how she and I have started to practice some of this in our own lives. So welcome with me, Kendra Randolph. And since it's Father's Day, her wonderful father and pastor Ron right there. So when Kendra and I first met, I think it was 2002, 2002. And, um, when we first met, we started doing a Bible study together. She was obviously amazingly gifted with students and kids and adults. And we didn't know each other very well, but we started doing Bible study together with staff and we were teaching and studying through the book of Genesis. And I am, I don't know if you've noticed, a white girl. So I had not studied Bible and text in a diverse community before. And as we're studying text, we came upon a passage around Noah and the flood. And I had never heard that that was a problematic passage because it just hadn't been a problematic passage in my life. And we're sitting there studying, and Kendra's like, yeah, so I always have trouble with this passage because, you know, it was used to support slavery. And I was like, what? I had no idea. And from that point forward, Kendra started, I knew, and I had known it before, but I practically understood it, that if I could listen to how she read the word of God, how she experienced the world around her, that I would be changed and for the better. And that I would get to know a fuller faceted person of Jesus than I had ever known before because of friendships like my friendship with Kendra. So we started a process of just honestly doing life and we did ministry together and ministry together means that you're busy and you're tired and you're exhausted. So sometimes you're not at your best and there's a lot of forgiveness that has to go both ways, particularly after really long weekends where we've had like 6,000 visitors for Easter and a lot of crying babies. Uh Yeah. Right. A lot of parents who are Nervous about giving us their children and then walking away. Right. Um, And in all of that, we had some moments where, because the church we were at started very primarily African-American. Only. Only. Only black. It was uh, 30-something black people. Right. Little black church in East Palo Alto. It's now now Abundant Life Christian Fellowship. And when when I was hired on, I was one of a handful of Caucasian folk that were attending. It was just starting to diversify. And I also really felt like a really exciting presence of God there that was deeply moving and exciting. So in that time, though, we started the staff and the community and the conferences. I think the resources I knew, because I was the pastor, were primarily Caucasian. Yeah, I had never heard of Willow Creek uh, Association or church or Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels. He's very white. Yes. Very well known among white people. Right. And so when, we, when I first came on staff, there, was a, there were pictures. If you've done children's ministry, trying to find a picture of Jesus that doesn't look like he's Norwegian is incredibly difficult. <laughs> and, and I knew enough to walk in and say, we are not going to have a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that we're going to ask our kids to accept into their hearts. So I would make, Stacy knew, like she had to keep earth-toned markers and she'd have to color in any pictures. We just did away with the pictures entirely anyway, right? Yeah, we were constantly making adjustments. Yep, constantly, yep. Absolutely. So when we first went to Willow Creek together, so you want to tell, please? Yeah, okay. So we went to um, Willow Creek Children's Ministry Conference in probably like 2005. Sure. And it's in South Barrington, Illinois. I'd never heard of, I don't know if you know where that is. It's outside of Chicago. Um, A very affluent suburb, apparently outside of Chicago. And there were thousands of people there at a children's ministry conference. So we were all excited and we really liked their curriculum. And Bill Hybels is a 
a great church leader, and we got there, and um, I don't know what, I mean, it was probably three nights that we would be the three, four, and there four were days, three nights. And there thousands of people there. Yeah, there was a ridiculous, it was a ton of people, their campuses, just giant. It was like being at a, a bigger than a community college. Right, yeah, yeah. But there were, there were no, I mean, no surprise, like, okay, so the, the black people here are me and <laughs> Stacy, who was up there in the picture, right. and then, like, maybe a few other people. And I remember feeling like I wanted to, I don't know, what, it, what exactly happened? Because I remember I, I asked you, why, why are people, like, I feel like people are looking at me. Right. And, she, and you were like, oh, oh really? <laughs> so Stacy, our friend, also happens to be African-American. If somebody looks at her, she just looks at them right back. And she doesn't break gaze at all. She's like, hello, can I help you? Right? And she'll talk to them. Hi, can I help you? Yeah, she's never met a stranger. No, Stacey no. Has never and she met does a, with a smile, fantastic. but she kind of like, are you staring at me? And, I, and like, she'll just call it out right away. So the first time Stacy and I had gone, she leaned right over to me in two seconds like, I'm the only pepper in this salt. And I was like, okay, you're right. We were there. And then we were in a com- one of the rooms together, and this guy threw something into the audience and threw it hard, and it hit right in the chair right next to Stacy. And she and I, like, screamed. Yeah. I don't know. It was very surprising. Do you remember that? Yeah. And we were like, did you just throw that at the only black person in the room? Like, that was always, like, all this kind of crazy. Right. So, so Kendra's like, white people are staring at me all the time. And I was like, oh, wow, are they? Like, I didn't not believe her, but, you know, I was just like. But I sounded crazy. No, I didn't think so. I was just like, oh, I guess so. I was, I had not been aware that all these people were staring at you. Or that I felt like that. Or that you felt like that, right? Yeah. Fair enough. I was, I believed you. Yeah. So then Which a is little, why you're my friend. Right. So then a little while later, we were walking into a session. So you tell Yeah. So we were coming into a, a se- the start of a session and there was a, like a guy at the, we were walking into the back of the auditorium and it had slanted seats and there was a guy leaning on the like the back row facing the door that we were walking into. And I watched him. I mean, he was, I don't know, maybe an older white gentleman, maybe in his 40s or 50s. And I watched him watch Danielle. Like she was in front of me and he just followed her. His gaze followed her. And I was behind her like, oh my gosh, he's staring at her too. Okay, wait, wait. White people just stare. (laughs) And I said that to Danielle and she was like, Oh, I was, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Okay, okay, I don't have, they're not just staring at me and, and wondering, like, why am I here? They might you know, be, well, but they might not but be. But they might not be. Right. But right. I didn't have to think over there. I'm, right. I didn't have to um, just think <laughs> that, that I was being looked at because I was the only, or whatever, being looked at in a particular way because I was black. And because we had we were friends and we'd done all this hard work together and life together, we could have that conversation, and I could affirm the fact that she felt like she was being stared at, and then she could be like, "Oh my goodness, white people just stare," and I'm like, oh, "I think we do just stare. Why do we just stare? Oh, we don't have a need to connect because we're a majority culture, so I don't have to walk into a room and find the one other person in the room that I can be safe with." Yeah. I, I don't have that need. And, and I realize um, this is a gross, I mean, so to, to say those four words, white right. people just stare, is a gross generalization. And sure. I, I recognize that and I apologize. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think that about all of, I mean, I don't. But um, there's, this, there's this place for me where, you know, growing up, um, I, my dad and I would, you know, my dad and my brothers, my brother, um, and I spent a lot of time together, obviously, because we were all in the same household. And... Wherever we would go, if my dad saw another black man, it would always be, say, say, brother, say. Like, with the little, the head thing and the say. And I'm like, okay, that's what you just do. You just say hi. Um, so now right, I, right. I've been wanting to do that. And pretty, mu- pretty much since I've known Danielle, I've lived in downtown Palo Alto. And so I'm, I've lived there 12 years in the same building. And I'll be, and I'm, we're, well, Marcus and I, we're like a block and a half from the farmer's market down there. And so I hear people all day, I mean, every Saturday from 8 a.m. to noon between May and December or whatever the months are that they have it. Um, and you hear people walking uh, from wherever they're coming from to go to farmer's market. And I hear them having conversations with strangers because our apartment is right up against the street. And I hear them having conversations, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, like long conversations. And at the end of the conversation, it's a, and what's your name? Oh, it's really nice meeting you. Okay, you know, take care. And then, but I go outside of my apartment where I live and 
I see somebody walking, you know, I'm walking opposite the person and I look at them like, cause I want to say hi, cause that's what I grew up seeing my dad do. And they're straight ahead. They're not even looking at me. And I, so I have this whole thought process where I go, wait a minute, are you, are you scared of me? Like, I should be scared of you. You're in front of my building. You don't live here. Like, why are you, why don't you want to look at me? I just want to say hi. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ask you for anything. Right. I don't right. want to, I just want to, I'm, I want to be neighborly and and I don't yeah. get to do that, or right. I, you know, I right. want to. Right. So, growing like growing up together these last fifteen years, yep. um, we would have these types of conversations where she could share something like that, where there was a hurt or a pain or a challenge, and I can learn from it, and then I can talk about a place where I have a growth area or is this the way that this, you know, to explain this and we can have these conversations. What was it like growing up for you in this area? Um, What kind of words did people say to you? And those types of stories, right, of like how we can sit and learn and empathize. But this doesn't come easy. And I think the thing that one of the things we've talked about is we've had also a lot of hard conversations. Oh, yes. And, um, and just, just cause we're humans and we work together and then you add the other layers of complexity. So at that same room where we were like, oh, white people just stare. I said something that I didn't know was insensitive. And the way in which I was saying it was actually fine. Like the thing that I was trying to say was a good thing to say, but the way that I said it picked up these terms that have luggage that was really loaded. You all can ask me that. I use the phrase good hair. You're not supposed to say that. I didn't know. And so I said, I was pointing to a, um, to an illustration of a, cause we were always complaining about the illustrations. I'm like, Oh look, that girl has good hair. And I was referring to the fact that she has braids, but that framing good hair has been used to talk about somebody's who hair, somebody's hair who is, if it looks more white within certain communities. So, and I didn't know, and I'm sitting there and they start to laugh. They're like, you can't say that. And I'm like, what? Can't say what? Like, we're, we've been talking about this all week. Look, look, she's got braids. Like, look, I'm telling you, look, there it is. I'm like, no, you said the words good and hair next to each other. That is not, that can't go together. I was like, oh, I had no idea. Like, we're going to, then they started giving me movie recommendations. Right. Here, these are the movies you need to watch. Here's this. Educate here, yourself. Educate yourself. Watch this network. <laughs> watch this show. Right. And, and, and because we were friends, we could laugh about it. We could, but I could also still, I mean, I took it very seriously. I never used that framing again. Um, and, and you were willing to know that my intention was good, even though the execution was bad. Yeah. I mean, right. you were trying to be sensitive right. to the, the, the fact that we were at, we worked at a church that was diverse in many, many different ways that had thousands of people at it. And we didn't want you repeating that same thing (laughs) in a context where it wasn't going to be received well. In a different context, it would have been okay. But because you were the children's pastor at a large church with a whole bunch of people. No, I I think I need to know that. It would not have been okay to say. Yeah. So this requires me to be vulnerable, right? It requires me to make a mistake. It requires me to know that I will make mistakes and that I will embarrass myself and humiliate myself and I'm going to not know when I'm making the mistake, right? And then it requires a good friend to be like, let me help you out, (laughs) right? Let's help a sister out and, and give me some helpful, loving instruction for how something can happen. Now, I think the other thing that that we've done together, we, we went to a conference, just Kendra and I, and we won't mention the teacher's name, but when this person taught, this person used really awful analogies. So, okay. So, um, the person was from out of state and they were commenting about the hospitality that had been provided by the hosts, uh, of the event. And they said, um, you know, they, they fed me so well here. I've, I've eaten so much. I could, I've eaten so much. I've, I've eaten, eaten enough, enough to, food, right. to feed an African village. And then. <laughs> and we were like, like uh, <laughs> what did she do? What? And Kendra was definitely the only pepper in the salt. She was the only anything in the salt. There was nothing. There was only salt. There wasn't even chili peppers in the, yeah. No. Um, <laughs> so then, so, and then a little bit later, the same, the same person, she's still, she was talking about. Um, clothing. Her closet, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, her clothing closet back at home, and how she had enough clothing in her closet to clothe an African village for a year. Okay, so so you can't say that, right? You shouldn't. But nobody else in the room is gonna even be aware that she shouldn't say that. Yeah, it was kind of like Every- la- like we all. La- 
I laughed out of like being uncomfortable, but it was like everybody laughed. Like everyone understood the point she was trying to make, and it was like, oh, <laughs> okay. And at that same conference then, there was also a woman who was just a member and participant in the conference who walked up to Kendra afterwards, and Kendra had been taking notes. So the teacher is very... She's, if you know me, you know that I take copious notes. Right. Except and, here at church. Right, right. And... I mean, in spite of the delivery, there was some good information, right? Even though the... Oh, yeah. There it, was, was, it was a great... Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, it was interesting. Is it? So, um, so then, then this other woman, an, an older Caucasian woman, walks up to Kendra on a break and says to her, you know, I've been watching you, and you just are so studious, and you're taking the best notes, and look at all that writing that you're doing there. And I just couldn't, the whole time I could only hear, like, things in my head, like... You write so well for a brown person, right? Like I just was for like, a slave, right? Yeah, that's what I heard in my head. Like this, look at how look how you're literate. I didn't know you people could read, right? I mean, it was so embarrassing. Now I'm sure I honestly thought that probably this older woman didn't understand why she, the thing she was saying was so insulting. Sure. Yeah, she was really nice. She was, Kendra was kind to her. So in those two things, I went and talked to the people afterwards. And I went... Why you are my friend, reason number two. <laughs> right. So I went and talked to the presenter and said, I'm sorry, I'm sure you, you probably don't understand or didn't mean, but, but these analogies aren't appropriate. Africa, first of all, is a giant continent with a lot of diversity, and this is just right. a silly thing to say, yes. right? Uh, and my daughter's from South Africa, and I've been to South Africa, I was just like, oh, but this is just a mess. So I tried to explain. She was like, well, I was just being funny. I'm like, but that's, it's not appropriate, Right. And this person cares deeply about cultural context of the Bible. And I said, what you're doing is so wrong because you're not even accurately representing the culture that you are talking about because you're an academic. You should care that that's inaccurate. And I remember being really, I, I was hurt that night because uh, that yeah. was the first night. Yep. And it yeah. was, um, I think, two nights maybe? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, I was really hurt. And Danielle told me at the, like, after everyone exited, she, like we we were in the room until everyone left, and Danielle said, "I'm gonna go talk to her." And I was like, "Okay, if you want to," but I, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to go do that. And I just remember saying, "Like only a, only a white person could say that to her. Like I can't say it to her because if I say it, then I'm being sensitive, overly sensitive, angry, whatever. Like what are you talking about? And only somebody who looks like you." could say that, I mean, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. to her in a way that she might be able to hear it. Right, right. And I think one of the other things that we've learned, and Okai and I were talking about this the other evening, is that when we meet people, I've been talking about this with my relationship with Jesus for a long time. The way we meet individuals, we might meet them where they're a zero or a one or a two, like complete rejection of the person of Jesus, um, or they don't know anything about him, or that at 10 would be maybe fully devoted follower of Jesus, and I, on a good day, might be a seven, right? So, like, we're all on this spectrum where we're always working in our relationship with Christ. And I think our willingness or ability for, for people in the majority culture, some of us have a really hard time hearing that the way we've been thinking about things or our participation in the majority culture, that we've been a beneficiary of these systems, that we haven't been willing to hear, um, sometimes we're stuck at zero or one or two. And when, when I went and shared this with this woman, um, the woman that was using the African village analogy, I didn't feel like she moved. I, didn't, I was frustrated. I didn't feel like she heard the problem. And I thought, she's going to say it again at the next conference. But my prayer is that three or four more people are going to explain that to her or she'll see a movie or she'll understand something or she'll hear a podcast and she's going to keep moving a click. So even if I don't get to see that result of like, oh, she said the prayer and she rejected that analogy, right? And she's moved all this way. If I get to be zero, one or two, then that's okay. So sometimes I think for me, the frustration has been when I don't see people making a big leap to the place where I want them to be right away. Um, I, I think I have to step back and realize that some of this is only going to come with prayer and fasting, right? And, and there's a lot of um, patience that I really wish I didn't have to have, but I think somehow I'm having to trust that God's going to move that person along, which ultimately to kind of help us end on a, um, a little bit of a note of some encouragement, Kendra has been using this phrase, hope is at home or in my home, or in your home. So would you share a little bit? Because this can all feel quite hopeless, particularly after oh, weeks yes. like this. Oh, yes. Like, yes. And I got to go to work in the morning. So it's, 
you know, another place where I'm the only one and people ask me about my hair all the time. Oh, uh, boy. Um, you know, has I, your hair ever been long? I had Phoebe the other day. Sorry. My daughter just said, Mommy, I don't like it when people touch my hair. And that was a good girl. All right. So yeah. okay. I understand and you so, can, yeah, right? I get psychologically prepared for going right. to work tomorrow. How to have a conversation. Um, and so when, I, when, when all this stuff is going on, like uh, in the world and just with, yeah. I mean, it started for me with um, it, right. Trayvon Martin, but then it got really bad with uh, Michael Brown. And I just was like, I can't. Sure. Um, so I, I started sort of emotionally checking out and, and pre- depression became a, a real thing because it's that kind of grief is not something that I could talk about. Um, right. And so, but in the midst of that, you know, my, my husband is a uh, college wrestling coach, right? You know this well. And uh, he's coaching with the women's college team. And the kids on the team, the student athletes on the team are who I now, I can take all of my energy, my desire, my frustration, whatever, and my joy, my hope, my pain, and channel it into walking alongside of them. Because, yes, even while this stuff is going on in the world, they're still undergrads. And for those of you who are, were, or um, are going to be an undergrad, you remember how small the world was. And if you know someone, if you've not been an undergrad and, like, ask somebody, did they know what happened in the world when they were undergrads? It's really hard to kind of be aware um, if you're, I mean, well, I shouldn't say it's really hard. It was hard for me. And these kids are, they're so focused on themselves. I heard one person describe it as, when you're an undergrad, your world is this big, and you are also this big. So, like, all you care about is this. And, um, and so for, for the kids on the team, you know, they have left home, and they're living on campus, and they, they're around everybody who's 18, 19, 20, right. 21. Um, so they're hungry to be around adults who have wisdom, and they're curious about, like, being, getting married and staying married and... They're, it's like these fantasy things that they hear about or and don't think that are potentially um, goals for them are things that they can observe in Marcus and me, not because we're right. perfect, but because we're trying to do it, to do, we're trying to love God and love people through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. So like the living water that comes out of me can be something that those kids can drink from. So I'm just like, hey, I can have kids in our home. So we're in a one-bedroom apartment, so it can't be the whole team. I used to dream about that. So it would just be a couple at a time, but they can come over. And sometimes it's the kids on the team. Sometimes it's their friends who are not athletes at all um, or going to going onto campus and being in their home, like in their little dorm so room. you're finding some hope in all this. Yes, it's fantastic. It's it's just like a it's almost like being with a three year old who forgets like they don't know paint I mean you know they don't they they just love life they'll so pay as, taxes as with you, you if you make it fun. Marcus like bring the kingdom into these people's lives where there's brokenness or hurt you start to see some hope absolutely all the time even talking about it makes me happy so so even if things are crazy and chaotic what I think Kendra's wisdom here is you can still start doing something good you can start making some change some help. So we'd like to invite you to join us. On Monday nights, there's been a group reading uh, The New Jim Crow, and Okai is facilitating some conversations, and many of you have been coming. And I just want to bless God for the fact that you guys show up and you have vulnerable conversation with one another, and it's hard work, and I can't believe you guys do that and that you're a group of Christians doing that. Read a book, listen to a podcast, watch a film, and join us for the next book where we're going to start practicing how do we say the things we need to say when we need to say them. And with that, I think Pastor Kendra and I, <laughs> Kendra, Kendra and I have a benediction for you all as we go. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness 
to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all the children and the poor. Amen. Amen. Go be the church.